podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Buzz Podcast. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined once again by my Navin brother-in-arms, Mr. Trev Downey. How are you, sir? I'm flying. Looking forward to this one, buddy. Yeah, this is this is a good one. So originally, we were going to do an hour on films about the Troubles, about kind of Irish history in general. And uh, with both of us being a little bit patriotic and a bit too quick to say certain <laughs> things, I think we thought we might offend quite a few people. So instead, instead, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to take the star of one of the best films about the Troubles and we're going to do a pod on him. This guy, I think if you're making a Mount Rushmore of actors, this guy is absolutely on there. He is the only person to win three Best Actor Academy Awards. He's won four BAFTA Best Actor Awards, two Golden Globe Best Actor Awards, and three Screen Actors Guild Best Actor Awards. I am, of course, talking about the one and only Daniel Day-Lewis. Trev, there's there's so much to get into with this guy, but we were talking a couple of days ago about him, and we were looking at his filmography, which, for a guy who made his real debut in 1982 in Gandhi and his last film was The Phantom Thread in 2017 like you're talking about 35 years mm. but for for that length of a career it's quite a concise compact filmography with a few real oddball inclusions and probably a higher percentage of out of the ballpark winner wonderful movies than possibly anyone else and it's not by accident he's got those three Catherine Hepburn by the way for completists does have four um as best actress but no one else has the has his record for individual best actor awards and I don't know what you think Dave but the ones that, that he won for, absolutely so well-deserved. I mean, you couldn't argue with any of those choices mm. he gets uh, uh, for, for for as Christy Brown in My Left Foot. That's just That just takes acting to a different level. Yeah. I have a feeling that there might be issues if that was made instead of in 1990, if it was made now in 2023. I think there'd be all sorts of people complaining about different things, uh, representation and stuff, but I could be wrong. He gets one for There Will Be Blood and he gets one for Lincoln. Now, he just acts the, the hell out of all three of those. But the other nominations, Gangs in New York could easily have been an Oscar nomination. Yes. Or an Oscar award, rather. In the name of the father, could easily have been a win. And so could Phantom Thread. Whether you like the movie or not, his immersion in that role is, is remarkable. And and there are probably other ones that didn't get onto the Oscar list where he's been wonderful. And I know, including your fave, I think, um, which we'll come to later on. So just off the scale, wonderful. And we should address the elephant in the room early on because we get a bit uh, spiky when we hear mm. the Brits claiming an Irishman as their own. And it's very tempting to claim Daniel because his dad was, well, Anglo-Irish born in, in Leash, I think, yeah. and went on to be the English poet laureate Cecil Day-Lewis. So none more English in many ways. And Daniel was born in England and, and very much is an Englishman with the most English accent you'll ever hear. However, he does have very, very strong ties to the country. When I was um, a younger man and considering the acting profession myself, I kind of came into the circle of Daniel via a pal of mine who was doing first AD on a lot of big films at the time. And he was living in Sandymount or thereabouts and would just be out in the pub at the weekend. He was whatever he was doing. He wasn't immersed in any dark, heavy role. And he was just a very man about town. And when he got when he went up to um, claim his award, he was in his one of his Academy Awards. He was in full Hawkeye long hair. And his announcement was along the lines of this will make for a great weekend in Dublin. So he does have a lot of affiliation yes. with the country. That's where that's just to, just to address that early on in case anyone thinks we're, we're claiming him as our own. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, he, he's been very clear. He is English. He's very, very proud of his Irish roots. He's very, very proud of the fact that he's been embraced by both countries. And he has said multiple times, like, he likes to live a very quiet, nondescript life away from his work. 
and Ireland affords that to him because we're a little bit different over here. Like the celebrity thing doesn't really happen in Ireland. Some people like McGregor or something kind of enforce it on them, on everybody else. Like I'm a celebrity, pay attention to me. But other than that, we can't really be arsed with them. Like Matt Damon decided to stay here during the pandemic because people just left him alone. Daniel Day-Lewis enjoys spending a lot of his time in Ireland because people leave him alone. He can go to the local pub and have a few pints and chat to the locals. And they're not ringing the newspapers to say, Daniel Day-Lewis is here. You want to come and get a picture or whatever? People just let him live his life. So I think that's the thing why he enjoys it here so much is he can be just a normal person. And the, the thing that's always struck me whenever I've seen him interviewed or whenever I've, I've seen anybody who, who knows him talk about him is just how normal he is. But he's never been a normal guy. He didn't grow up in a normal house. Like you said, his father is Cecil Day-Lewis. He was the Poet Laureate. His mother is Jill Balcom, who's quite a, fa quite a famous actress in her own right. Uh, his sister is very well known as a television chef and food uh, critic. They are a celebrity family, but he has very much shunned that celebrity lifestyle in favor of just enjoying the fruits of his own labor. What do you think about this concept of, just in case people are listening and they think Dave's exaggerating, it, it, it's absolutely the truth. P people don't get hassled here. I don't know what it is. Maybe we just think we're better than everybody, or I don't know what it is in the Irish uh, mentality. But you know, again, in back in that era as a young fellow, when I was in Dublin, you uh, you pass lads from U2 on the street, you wouldn't even look at them. You pass like the Rolling Stones were barreling into a hotel when I was coming out, and they were the ones welcoming us as we bundled past them. You know, mm. people don't react to celebrity in that way, which is makes that sort of display with Unky Joe there last week all the more cringeworthy. I couldn't understand half of that at all. But yeah, it it it's it it is definitely a thing and he could happily blend in. Now, does that mean at half eleven when some messy lad in the pub decides to come up and have a chat with him? Of course that happens everywhere. But in the street, yeah, it, it's not a thing. I don't know what it is, but I do like it about where we're from. Oh, it's it's absolutely the truth. I remember many years ago, I was a civil servant working in the Department of Finance up on Marion Square. And I saw Bill Clinton come in and out of the Marion Hotel. I saw Bono come in and out of the Marion Hotel and, and people didn't really bother them. Uh, I bumped into Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick in the pub on the corner while having lunch one day. They asked me for directions and just seemed very at peace and very, you know, happy to not have a crowd of people around them trying to take their photograph or ask them questions or whatever. They were just normal people living normal lives. And I I think in Ireland as well, like, there's, there's the great Irish begrudger. Like, we don't like to see people doing better than us. <laughs> and I think what we do is we just sort of decide for ourselves yeah, they're, they're doing well at what they do, but I'm doing well at what I do, and therefore we are equals. So there's no... 100%. Over yeah, this 100%. I have to say, you mentioned the Biden thing. Like, that that did sicken me. That that was... Very, I had a lot of secondhand cringe for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, no surprise to see, you know, the likes of Leo fawning over him. But the general public, like, set yourselves down. He's not royalty. We, we as a country have spent 500 years battling against a country ruled by royalty. We don't need to deify an American man who is merely in a position because he was elected to that position. And when his term is up, unless he wins re-election, he just goes back to being a normal fella. Um, so, that, yeah, I didn't like that at all. It was very against what I know to be the Irish way. Um, so, yeah. Just poor old Joe. He won't remember by next week that he was here anyway. So no, no. But we'll always have the memory of the, of, of Rob Carney and the black and tans to keep us warm at night. Yes. Uh, that was. Exactly. 
<laughs> that was wonderful. What do you think, Dave, about maybe just uh, this guy is there's so many aspects of, of his character we go by him we're focusing on the kind of privacy and the way that he likes to keep keep to himself and he can go missing for years between yeah. films from was it 94 until 2003 from 2003 till 2008 2008 till 2013 or whatever it was big big gaps anyway yeah. um and 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 oh that was between awards actually but these big long gaps where he he there was at least one uh, retirement that and yes, before the Phantom Thread, he he retired after no. Lincoln. Yes, he was done in 2013. Back. Yeah, and he yeah, came back five you, years later. Yeah. If you look at at what he did, so I, I I sent you his filmography the other day, and you replied with, "Imagine being in Gandhi, a room with a view, my beautiful laundrette, and the bounty before you were anything." Yeah. So that that shows that where he started. He started up right at the top. And then he did Nanu in in 86, took two years off, came back with the unbear, unbearable lightness of being and stars and bars in 2018. Or sorry, 2008, sorry, 1988. In 1989, he does My Left Foot and Ever Smile New Jersey. Then he takes three years off, does a couple of films within two years. Then he takes another three years off. Then he does the boxer. Then he takes five years between the boxer and gangs of New York. Yeah, that was the gap I was taking off. Yeah, that yeah, is, yeah. Having won an Academy Award, being right at the top of your profession, to just go away for five years. Then he comes back, one film, three years off, one film, two years off, one film, two years off, one film, three years off. That's Lincoln. He retires again, and then he comes back for the Phantom Thread, and that apparently is going to be the last we see of him. Well, compare him to Bob De Niro, who's one who who can walk in the same path uh, as 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 Daniel, or Daniel can walk in the same path as Bob, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, that lad's never finished making films. He makes about fifteen films a year. Now you yeah. could say maybe it's a, just at this stage it's a paycheck issue. I don't know. But Day Lewis, his his output rate, like there's a couple of years there where he's made two films, and that's the literal height of it. A couple of yeah. years. All the rest of it, there's these two and three year gaps. Now that does not speak of a lad who's interested in playing the Hollywood system at all, at all, because he absolutely shuns all that side of things. He could be and should be this absolute mega superstar DiCaprio and beyond in terms of his profile, but he doesn't want a bar of it. He goes, when he retires that time, he goes off to become a cobbler, like an actual yeah. cobbler, you know, because he, he's, he's not given to the, the, the celebrity thing at all. And I just, I just find, find him fascinating. And I mean, we said that we'd focus a little bit, didn't we? on the film that kind of kicked this off as a potential topic for a show for us, which is In the Name of the Father. And that came out in, just for a bit of context for folks, that came out in 1993, when he also played Newland Archer, a, a completely contrasting, uptight New York, turn of the previous century sort of uh, gent um, in a Scorsese movie, the, movie, the Age of Innocence. But this movie in 1993 in the name of the father was the one he opted for i don't know if you came across this when you're doing a bit of research but really I've, i i did not know this until last week he opted for this ahead of having turned down the role that tom hanks played in philadelphia yes and tom hanks of course wins the freaking oscar ahead and, of him. And, and beats him out for best actor that's yes yeah, yeah that's yeah, the yeah. thing it's one of the great sliding doors moments because hanks obviously was was a star and I, I think hanks is very much in the the same sort of category as as daniel day lewis as one of the best we've ever seen in front of the camera but totally different right but, Hanks, to, but a totally Hanks, different type of actor. Yeah, he's the everyman, right? He's the guy that, you know, he's just, like I say, he's the everyman. Not saying mm. he can't do heroic or he can't do funny. He can do all the things. But you you could not imagine Hanks in one single one. Well, maybe one or two. But most of the roles that, that, that Day-Lewis played, you couldn't imagine Hanks doing them. Whereas, no, no, that's the thing. Like, Tom Hanks is is very malleable and he can turn his hand to many different aspects but 
when Daniel Day-Lewis plays a character, see, when, when Hanks plays a character, Hanks molds that character to himself. And there's still, there's still Tom Hanks quirks about the character. Yeah. But when Day-Lewis plays the character, he fully immerses himself in the character. And that's one of the reasons that he has acted so infrequently is that he puts such commitment into these films <clears throat> that he needs a significant amount of time to recover from the damage that he does to himself. Now, you mentioned De Niro earlier on and how he just works endlessly. Between 1982, when Day-Lewis made Gandhi, and 2017, when he made The Phantom Thread, 35 years, Daniel Day-Lewis made 20 films total. In that, in that time, just that period of his career, Robert De Niro made 74 films. <laughs> That's my point. <laughs> and Robert De Niro had been acting for nearly 20 years before that. Exactly. And has been acting consistently since. For, 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 for context for people, 82 is two years after De Niro made Raging Bull. He yes. had been at it for a while. So yeah. uh, Before know. that, he'd already made Taxi Driver, The Deer Hunter, The Godfather Part 2. He'd been in a bunch of other films as like a supporting actor. Mean Streets as well, which is Mean about. Streets, of course. That's the thing. He'd been in the gang that couldn't shoot straight. He'd been all over the map. Like before he makes, before Day-Lewis makes Gandhi, John, uh, Robert De Niro has already made 20 films, though two of which were uncredited. So 18 movies in which he was credited before Day-Lewis appears on the scene. Yeah. He, De Niro would basically already have the same amount of films, the same kind of career in terms of the number. I, with Day-Lewis, though, like it's because he's he's so picky and he's so adamant about what he wants to give the role. And as I said, he, he does just fully commit himself to every single script that he gets. He immerses himself in the character. Like there's, there's famous stories about uh, in Christy Brown, how he insisted on trying to do everything. Not when the cameras were on. When the cameras were off, he insisted on trying to do everything with his left foot. He insisted on not walking because he wanted to stay in the character. He wanted to be as close to authentic as was humanly possible. Oh, the crew, I, the crew, cast and crew had to wheel him around for his yeah. food and stuff. Like we will, we definitely need to talk about this concept of method acting. But mm. sorry, I, I don't want to break your flow there. Go ahead. No, it was just like I, I remember hearing about when he played um, Bill the Butcher in Gangs of New York. He insisted on wearing the clothing of the era all the time and i think he ended up getting like borderline pneumonia because they were filming some of it through winter but he was adamant i'm not changing the clothes this is what i'm going to wear all the time i'm this is the character i am right now well if we're doing the stories just a little list of dan's method acting he ended up breaking two ribs while playing christy brown because of the posture that he was leaning forward into, which was as close to replicating the real thing as possible. He ended up breaking two ribs as a stress injury. He became an apprentice butcher for Bill the Butcher, not just wearing the clobber, but becoming an apprentice butcher. When he was playing Hawkeye, he was basically lived as an outdoors man, ended up building his own, making his own canoes, uh, came to Christmas dinner with his family as Hawkeye with his freaking rifle. <laughs> Right. Um, lost 50 pounds for the role of um, uh, Jerry Conlon and got two cops to basically interrogate him over 50 hour period and rough him up a bit. Um, he built his own house when he was playing John Proctor in The Crucible. And again, like you know, that, that sort of rough, tough outdoors man life, two years training um, for his role in The Boxer yeah. uh, at the end of it. People were saying, like competitive fighters and commentators were saying, I saw an interview with Joe Rogan talking to a couple actual boxers saying this guy was actually capable of competing yeah. at a high level. I mean, this is bananas. Yeah. Circus performers taught him how to throw knives for his role as Bill the Butcher. I think he's broken his nose several times. You mentioned his um, 
the 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 what do you call it the the the, the pneumonia. Mm. Um, it's just unbelievable immersion in it. Now, I, I I'm a guy who flirted with this as a profession, so I'm really curious to get your take on it. I always loved the story where Dustin Hoffman was doing Marathon Man with Larry Olivier. And and Olivier is looking at Hoffman going through his method bits and getting it psyched up and and, and whatever and doing a few laps before he has to do a scene where he's done a few laps and whatever it was. And basically the, the throwaway line is... Hoffman obviously wants to impress him, but Olivier is just, just act, dear boy, is his take, right? Yeah. This is his dismissal of the method acting. But man, my heroes are Brando and De Niro and all those guys who did the Stanislavski method and were really big into method acting and felt that they had to immerse themselves in it. And when you see the finished product, if it was shit, you could maybe sneer and belittle it. But how can you belittle Jake LaMotta? How can you belittle Hawkeye? How can you belittle um, uh, Jerry Connell as a performance? These are these are stunningly real. And if that's what the guy needs, I say more power to him. What's your take on it? Do you find it wanky or? No, I, I fully agree because I think if you're going to take on, especially when you're taking on the role of a real person, Less so if it's, you know, just a fictional piece. But if you're taking on the role of a real person, you owe it to that person to be as close to them, as close to authentic as you possibly can. And, you know, Hoffman, like you said, is is a proponent of method acting like Day-Lewis, and he would just get properly in-depth on, on many roles. And he felt that's what he needed to do to give the best performance that he was capable of. Now, maybe Laurence Olivier was capable of just rolling out of bed and just flicking a switch and it would come on. Certainly had an incredible career. Uh, It is is widely held in high regard. But if I want an actor to play a role that is either a real person or that an author has spent time creating, a character, a backstory, quirks, whatever. I want that actor that's going to play that role to give every single bit that they have. Because for the actor themselves, a lot of it is pride. The film itself might not end up being much, but a lot of people will watch that film and say, you know what, the story is not great, but the performance is incredible. Would you say that? Would you say that about, for example, Gangs of New York. Now, I'm a big Scorsese fan, but there's a lot of, I think, there are several issues with that film. That I just, Including Leo DiCaprio. I've never rated him as highly as other people. Um, there's a lot of little issues. But that performance by Day-Lewis in the middle of it is just searingly brilliant. You just can't take your eyes off him. So all of a sudden, that's that, that makes the film worthwhile for me. I think, now, I think without... Without Daniel Day-Lewis, that's a decent film. Yeah. With him, it's a very good film. Yeah. But it's it's because of him. Like you said, there are a lot of issues with other performances. There's there's some holes in the storyline. It's 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 a rather long piece that at times can struggle to hold your attention. But when Bill the Butcher's on screen. You're immediately locked in. You're drawn to him. Like you, I, I think I think DiCaprio is significantly overrated. I think he's a good actor, but I don't think he's a, a great actor. I don't think he'll be remembered for individual performances that he put on. I think he, he like, if, if you said to somebody, what's your favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance? I think they'd hum and haw a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, they'd probably say, oh, maybe The Departed. What did you like about him? Oh, it's a great film. Okay, but what did you like about him? Yeah. Oh, well, he fit well into that role. Okay, he fit it well into that role alongside Matt Damon and Nicholson and a whole cast of great actors. I think if you put a cast of great actors around him, I think he can give you a strong performance. Well, I quite, quite like him in a couple of films, but he, for me... You know, 
there's other films where he's been lauded, and I just think it, it's it's quite it's quite hammy. Like, well, I'm I'm a big fan of of, of the Departed as well, and, and as you say, the cast is wonderful. But Lord Jesus, like any time he's on, he's he's in the same room or or or, or over and back in a scene with Mark freaking Wahlberg yeah. is more impressive than him because yeah. he's actually he's actually very funny in that Wahlberg. But you know what I'm saying is that's the level you're talking about there. You're talking about a guy who is very much a really good functional leading man. When we're talking about Daniel Day Lewis, this is a whole different species. It's a different species, Dave. Like he's just. He's capable of doing things, and and this is to, to bring it around full circle. This is why I don't think it's wanky because the end product is so stunning mm. that you get left with gifts like Daniel Plainview, you get left with gifts like Jerry Conlon and John Proctor and Christy Brown. That honestly, I'm not sure anybody else could have done. And if that means that Daniel has to. Uh, you know, be ridiculed and mocked by certain uh, cynical people because of his uh, total and utter dedication to an, a maniacal level to the cause, then so be it. And if people don't really get it, Day-Lewis is not a normal man. He's not like you or me or Dave or anyone who's listening to us. Day-Lewis is the guy who, when he was playing Hamlet in the early stages of his career on the stage, was totally immersed in the role it's probably the greatest stage role i mean you know it's one of those great great stage roles and of course central to it is the dead father and the ghost of the dead father and the guilt there there in the in the sun and a role of vengeance to carry out and at one point in a performance in the early run of his time doing hamlet uh, I think it was with RSC or it was RAD or some of those. It was highly, highly uh, um, publicized and very, very um, uh, top-end production. Day-Lewis had a breakdown, Dave, because in the scene where he's talking to the ghost of his dead father, he's so into this role that something triggers in him, something breaks in him. He left the stage yeah. and he did not return to that run. Now, you might say, oh, for fuck's sake, get your shit together. I say, when I see what this guy has produced over the over the body of his work, that's the kind of guy. That's the total immersion guy. That's the guy who's so on the edge with his performances that brilliance will occur. But that, as a person, that must be a fragile fella. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's worth remembering that De Lewis was, you know, a fairly young man when he lost his own father his father died in 1972 daniel day lewis was only 15. so he was in those formative years developing from you know boy into teenager and then into a young man he loses his dad um his dad was was 68 when he passed away i don't know how close the connection between the two ever was like that's not something i've heard day lewis himself talk about because his dad was 53 when he was born. There's, you know, it, that's a significant age gap. The 53-year-old and a 10-year-old or 63-year-old and a 10-year-old, as it would have been, aren't going to have a whole lot to, to chat about. It's not the same as, you know, when you're, your dad is 25 when you're born and by the time you're 10, you still, you know, you can talk about football and whatever else. So I think, you know, it probably did have an effect on him and when he's doing that role and he's talking to the, because in his head, he's not Daniel Day-Lewis playing Hamlet. That's it. He is Hamlet. That's it. And some, some, some thing in the psyche just goes, Jesus. And 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 it, it it just broke him. The role broke him. And I just thought, wow, that was such an insight for me into the guy that's going to go on and create these, you know, absolute masterpiece roles. I mean, what would you say? Did, did you want to do a little bit on the, in the name of the father, or do you want to give it a wide yeah. berth? No, yeah. we can jump. We can jump into the name of the father. In the name of the father, this this to me is. It, I know some people have taken issue with some of the historical inaccuracies and and all the rest. Yeah, and there are, there, there, there is there of are. course there is of yeah. course, but appreciate this for a couple of things. Number one, its depiction of the the time and the era that it took place in its depiction of what was a massive story at the time the guildford pub bombing the guildford four the persecution of 
the Conlon family, the false imprisonment or, you know, the imprisonment of four individuals for the bombing and then other people for allegedly protecting them or lying about it. The, the cover-up job. All of this needed to be told. Yes, there's some, you know, creative license and creative freedom taken with the with the story, but it's it's a as a film, it's phenomenally good, and it does tell a brilliant story. But then there's also the real aspect of it. There is the aspect of the fact that these are real people. Jerry Conlon was a real people, a real a real person, and the Conlon family were dragged through the mud for a long long time and never got real retribution for what they were subjected to and his dad ironically dies in prison giuseppe mm. he's one of the Maguire seven the people you mentioned who are taken in because they're affiliates or associates of the guildford four uh specifically the Conlons. and giuseppe dies in prison now in the movie they portray them in the same prison i don't think yeah. that actually happened no, but that's one that's one of those exactly that's one of those things that people like to throw at the film and stuff like that and it's a bit of a shame because one of the greatest scenes in that film is where jerry's just exasperated continuously with giuseppe and the way that he's behaving and it, it it's 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 sad that it's not real because it's such a beautiful scene and it's some of the best acting you'll ever see um but you're driving the bus in the right direction here because this and Jim Sheridan said something along the lines of that, look, this is more of a, a movie about the feelings and the thoughts and the ideas mm. rather than the accuracies of it. But there was a real man there. And Jerry Conlon, you mentioned him. Uh, his life was fucking destroyed, destroyed. So yeah. he had those years in prison. Then he comes out. He's into all sorts of hell with alcohol and drugs and depression, suicide attempts. It's only towards the end of his life that he sort of manages to rehabilitate himself a little bit. And then the poor bastard dies of cancer. His yeah. life is destroyed by, yeah. by, by, by just a, um, an absolutely criminally uh, awful and vindictive judicial system in England that, you know, our other connection with our Liverpool podcasts, we talked all too often about that on those shows. And here, you know, you're talking about time of the Birmingham Six, you're talking about the Guildford mm. Four and the Maguire Seven, all of these people eventually get out of prison because they were put in prison unlawfully. Yeah. And, and I, I, do you remember the feeling of seeing this for the first time? Because I think I've said this to you before. I came out of the cinema that day. I was on O'Connell Street with my brother watching it. And I came out, and I don't know, this is why I think we decided to waver away from doing the entire show on this uh, and, and on the other wonderful films in this genre as well, because I came out with all sorts of sort of deep set that I didn't even know was there, anger that was just triggered. I was furious coming out of that film. Do you know what I mean? It just, it made me feel so angry about all the multitudes of horrors that have happened over centuries and especially in recent times that were just, you know, we just sort of listened to the news and got on with it. And yeah. uh, these are real people. And that just made it very real, didn't it? That movie made it very real. It did. And I, I remember of a few, few family members that are, are quite staunchly um, Republican to be nice. And uh, I do remember, you know, there, there'd always be a bit of chatter about, the Guildford Four, the Birminghams. After the Guildford Four were released, obviously, then the focus went on the Birmingham Six. For those that don't know the stories, in 1974, there were two sets of bombings. There were many bombings by the IRA in England, but two of them, one was in Guildford and one was in Birmingham. And two groups of people were arrested as a result and sentenced to life in prison and none of them had been involved in those bombings. So in 1975, these two sets of uh, convictions happen. Jerry Conlon and the rest of the Guildford Four, they get sentenced to life in prison. And then uh, Paddy Hill and, and the Birmingham Six, they all get sent to life in prison as well in the same year. It takes 14 years for the Guildford Four to finally get released. 
it takes a further two years for the Birmingham Six to get released. And and as Trev alluded to, Jerry Conlon's life was destroyed by this. So I want to paint a picture here. Jerry Conlon grows up in Belfast. And Belfast, the Belfast he's born into becomes a war zone in his teens. Nothing else can describe what Belfast was other than it was a war zone. And he had gotten himself in a little bit of trouble and was basically sent to England to get away from the trouble of Belfast. So he goes to Belfast. He is 20 years of age. He's been in Belfast a few months, uh, in London rather, a few months. This bombing takes place and they're looking for they're looking for Irish people to blame is the only way I can really describe it. At 20 years of age, he's arrested. He's forced into a confession, as with the rest of them, through lies, through intimidation. And they're sentenced to life in prison at 21 years of age. Now, just think about that for a second. You're 21 years of age. You've done nothing wrong and you're sentenced to life in prison. You then have to sit in a prison cell and watch a government, not an individual, a government, tear down your entire family, send your father to jail, send your aunt to jail, ruin countless lives, all because they're looking for someone to blame. And he stays in prison for for 14 years, 15 when you include the fact that after he was arrested, he was in prison for like the better part of a year yeah, before yeah. he was convicted. So 15 total years in prison from the ages of 20 to 35. Now, as everybody beyond the age of 35 will tell you, that's really the part of your life where you have the most fun. They're the years where you can go and make all the mistakes you want and do, you know, all the wild things you want and, you know, sow your wild oats and whatever else it is you want to do. Drink yourself into oblivion, the whole shebang. He didn't get to experience any of that. So he grew up in a war zone where it wasn't safe to be out at night because you could get shot by the British Army. You could get shot by the, the loyalists for being in the wrong part of the city. You could get shot by the IRA because they might have just deemed that you did something that they didn't like. Grows up in that, goes to London, and then his life is taken away from him. So he didn't get to have the type of normal childhood that a person might get to have. He doesn't get to experience his early, his 20s at all and loses half his 30s. He comes out of prison. He, he, he has never had a life. He has never gotten to experience life. His life has been stolen from him. And as Trev says, he dealt with alcohol addiction and <clears throat> couldn't stay out of trouble, couldn't stay on the right path. Because how could you after what he'd been, been through? Then he finally gets himself in a good place and he gets cancer. And he's dead at the age of 60, which is, is no age really. But that man's life was was destroyed and, and that man's life deserved more. So when Day-Lewis took on that role, he was taking on the role of a guy who was a very real person, who was only four years out of prison, who'd been through the absolute horrors. And Daniel Day-Lewis felt he owed it to Jerry Conlon to be Jerry Conlon, not to be Daniel Day-Lewis plays Jerry Conlon, but to be Jerry Conlon, and he launches himself into this film. And yeah, there, there are reasons people can pick holes in Jim Sheridan's portrayal of the story. But watch it as a film, and it is phenomenal. Know the story, and it will infuriate you. Because and, and that's the thing, right? The, these people who pick holes with oh Gareth Pierce wasn't here or there, or the the lawyer for both 
uh, the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six, who you know was responsible for um, doing great work to get them out. You know, and 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 there were, I, heard, I hear these oh well, couldn't have been there at this time, and oh the the lads weren't in prison at the same time. It's so fucking what it, it's there are there are there's a little bit of artistic license, yes, but the, the story you've just laid out, that's all there in the film. That's all there in the film, Dave. Yeah, and the, the and, key, the most important parts of the story are accurately portrayed in the film. Yeah. Yes, there's certain little licenses taken to make it a bit more concise because otherwise it will be this sprawling, rambling thing and people would say it's a bit sprawly and a bit rambling. Jim Sheridan tried to tighten the waistband of this and tell it as a succinct story. And to do that, he had to have certain little bits of creative freedom. But none of the important stuff is missed. And the and the real story here is the story of the injustice. And the secondary story is the story of the father and son, mm. and specifically Jerry's story himself. And the way that Day-Lewis sort of evolves over that 15-year period, the way he goes from this, like, you know, actually looks like a 20-year-old troublemaker, um, you know, nicking a few bob in in in, in Soho or wherever it was, and getting then getting into the, the initial trouble, which landed him being arrested. And then all of a sudden, you see him coming out of prison towards the end. You see what the the the, the effect of the ravages of that time and the prison life on him. And by the way, man, let's not underestimate. As, as someone who who spent most of my young life trying to be a mimic and really interested in accents. I have no respect for any actor. It's like I don't have any respect for an artist who can't draw. Because I, 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 yeah. I, I think you're not an artist. If you can't draw, if you can't pick up a pencil and draw, then you're not an artist. Now, that might be ignorance on my part, but that's my take. Similarly, if you can't do voices and accents, and accents, I don't think you're a, you're a proper actor. This guy nails every single yeah. voice. we got to talk about his voices at some point later on. But my God. This is perfect. And it's a very difficult accent to do is the Belfast accent, especially if you're brought up with a plummy English accent like Daniel was. Oh, absolutely. Look, um, we have seen many, many, like the, the thing that drives me up the wall more than anything when I watch a film or TV show is when there's an Irish character being played by generally an American and the accent is like the stereotypical top of the morning to you type of dreck. And the two most offensive examples I can think of, Sons of Anarchy, when oh they... Oh, God, that's the worst thing on in television history, that there, there, there was no Irish actor you could have found to play that role. Oh, None at God. all. That's, um, that's the guy who plays Bosch, right? Bosch. So... I put off watch, watching, I love the Bosch books. Yeah. I put off watching the show for years because that actor offended me so badly. Exactly the same reaction I had. And the other one is Brad Pitt in The Devil's Own. You know what? It's it's not it's not quite Tom Cruise uh, levels, far and oh, away levels. I forgot about <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, little shout out mention for our pal, Leo, with his inverted commas Irish accent in gangs. Yeah. You know? So but but yeah. but yeah. Point but, taken point taken on Brad. Uh, Brad gets a pass from me for whatever that version of a gypsy as they call it pikey accent he does in Snatch. Yes, which that's is magnificent. That's just magnificent. But <laughs> I'm Joseph Donnelly of the family <laughs> Donnelly. That you threw off our that to me. <laughs> oh, it's horrendous. It's, oh, it's, Tom, if you were such a time. little man, I'd have slapped you around the ears. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, why don't we segue out of this uh, before we get too heated <laughs> uh, with, 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 with a chat on our favourite one each. And, and yeah. just, do, can I, do you mind if I play you two minutes of Richard Harris, a genuine Irish acting legend, talking about sticking it to a a really posh Brit in the theater. Oh, you absolutely. Hear, you want to hear Absolutely. That? This is true. I swear to God, it's a true story. I was then in this company, and I was cast as the doctor in Macbeth. And there was a leading actor in the company who was very British, very English, who had a kind of an attitude towards the Irish. Mm. 
He used to call us paddies and mixed. Oh. And he thought that I shouldn't have this tiny little part as the doctor. I should be carrying right. a spear. Right. <laughs> and he was so rude to me through the whole rehearsals, so rude you can't believe. Now, in the mid, just the middle of the play, Lee and he's and, and this and this English actor is playing Macbeth, the king. And at the at the centre part of the play, the queen dies. He doesn't know she's dead. And I played the doctor. And I have to make my one appearance, and he stands as the king and says, How goes the queen? In his posh English accent. And I have to say, you must remember this now, I have to say, The queen, my lord, is dead. To which he now, that's his cue for the most important soliloquy in the entire play, which is, he, re he responds and he says, She should have died hereafter. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And he's been waiting to say this famous speech. And I think I'll get him back, all right. <laughs> I'll fix him in the opening night. So suddenly it comes. And he comes out. He stands with his crown, his beard. And he turns to me and I enter. He says, how goes the queen? And I say, well, she's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, such a job that is. Oh, that is genius. That is absolute genius. <laughs> Richard Harris was uh, he was one of a kind. I, I, they, they... I, I listened to him telling stories about him and uh, O'Toole mm. and all night. They're just unbelievable. If you get a chance to go down that YouTube rabbit hole Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole telling stories about themselves and Ollie Reed and uh, uh, Burton oh my god endless crack endless crack back to Daniel what do you want to say is your favorite one if you have to pick one so I mean there's there's obviously there's a lot of contenders here but I I wouldn't say it's the best film he's made I think it's a great film but my favorite of his is The Last of the Mohicans Love it. I, I just I adore this film. I, I love films of that era. I love films of that genre. I love anything really that that has sort of a Native American theme. And you mentioned um, when we were chatting about this the other day, uh, Wes Stutty, who's obviously been in in this, in Dance with Wolves, in Geronimo, which are three of my favorite films. Uh, and all came out kind of in a four or five year spell. But I, I just, I love this film. I, I love the story. I love the performance of Day Lewis as Nathaniel Hawkeye Poe. I, I think he, again, it's just one that he completely immersed himself into. Obviously, it's a, you know, it's a fictional, uh, a fictional character, but the way he throws himself into the story, he does great service to the legacy of a character that had existed for a long time before this film. Um, first, I think, appeared in, in 1841 in a, a book called The Deerslayer, um, which was part of the letter-stocking tales by James Fenimore Cooper. And there's... Um, there's five books, the second of which is The Last of the Mohicans. Then there's The Pathfinder, The Pioneers and The Prairie. And De Lewis just completely engulfs himself in being that character. And he lives that character for the duration of this, this movie and, and the filming around it and his preparation for it. And he could easily, he could easily have won best actor for this role like this this performance was completely worthy of best actor he, he lost out in the baftas to robert de niro's chaplain um it wasn't nominated he wasn't nominated for best actor that year which i thought was was a mistake i think if you look at um those who were nominated who was up that year yeah did you have that list yeah so now no issue with a couple of them. Absolutely no issue with Anthony Hopkins winning for Silence of the Lambs. Right. Incredible. But I think he was, I think his performance is better than Nick Nolte in Prince of Tides. Yes. I think it's better than Robin Williams in The Fisher King, even though I think that's a tremendous film. 
Yeah, but yeah, um, but I'm still with you. Go. De Niro is up for Cape Fear, which I, I love that performance by De Niro. It's one of my favorite De Niro films. And then Warren Beatty is up as Bugsy for um, oh, fucking hell, really? Yeah. So no, um, man. Oh, no, he should be in there. He should. He should be in there. I think he should be in there. Now, obviously, depending on the timing, it may it may well have been the following. Would it all oh, would it have been the following year that he should have been up? The film was ninety two. He should have been in ninety three. So sorry, I've given you the wrong list. Hang on. We've got Pacino as Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade. Okay, no argument. That. He won, didn't he? He won. He won. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It that's yeah. that's right up there with my favorite Pacino yeah. uh, performances. De Niro as Chaplin. De Niro was great as Chaplin. De Niro as what? Oh, sorry, not De Niro. Downey Jr. Downey Jr. Downey Jr. Downey Jr. Yeah. Chaplin. I, I don't okay. have an issue with that. Yeah. Uh, Denzel Washington as Malcolm X. No issue there. No, no. This is a good list, man. <laughs> Stephen Ray in the Crying Game. No, no, no. I'm not having that over. No, over Hawkeye. No, I what's the last one? And Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven. Oh, look, again, no arguments. That's fucking amazing. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But that, that, That's a strong list, man. It's a strong list, but I think Stephen Ray... The Crying Game's a great film. Uh, but I, I don't think his performance is as strong as Day-Lewis in 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 um, The Last Mohicans. I, I don't think it's there. Now, I don't think Day-Lewis should have won. I think you could make an argument for it. But, mm. I mean... Pacino as Frank Slade is is iconic. Uh, Unforgiven is a phenomenal portrayal. And then Denzel as Malcolm X and, and Downey Jr. as Chaplin. They're phenomenal performances of historic characters or historic uh, figures. Which is why, if you think about it, he would have fit right in there and probably yeah. would, you would bump Stephen Ray out. It's not nothing against Stephen. Fair no, fight. no, he's, it's it's very a, good actor, he's, he's very good and it's a very good film and he's very good in the role. But I, I just don't think it's at the same level as the others that are there. Like Malcolm X, that Denzel performance is is breathtaking. Like he threw himself into that role. Obviously, there are cultural reasons why he wanted to portray that role and why he gave so much to it. Um, the same, I think, goes for, for Downey Jr. as Chaplin. I think he wanted to really give an accurate portrayal of, of someone that he held as, as you know, a hero of his own. And then the other two boys, I mean, Pacino and, and Eastwood, when, when, when they're in their prime and they're putting on those performances, they're just in, that's just as simple as that. But I, I think, I think Day Lewis belongs on that list for that performance. Um, he just, he's so, so good. And the film itself is great. Like if, if people haven't seen it, I, I do highly recommend it. I, I think it's it's a really enjoyable film. It's a really good story. There's kind of a range of emotions you'll go through in watching that film because of the different things that are portrayed, you know, including obviously the massacre and the, the kidnapping and and you know the 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 attempts to to free Alice at the end and. It's just, it's a great film. It really is. And, and he is absolutely brilliant. And a, a special tip of the Downey cap here to Madeline Stowe, who's very lovely indeed. Mm. Uh, I, I was heartily in love with her after that film, I have to say. Um, I, 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 I love that as a choice. And I, I'm going to be far more predictable and go for one that he did win one of the shiny things for, which is uh, Daniel Plainview. His performance is Daniel Plainview and There Will Be Blood. And in that movie, he's working with Paul Thomas Anderson and there's a show in and of itself to be honest with you that guy's amazing he's 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 almost Day Lewis esque if you look at his filmography he starts off yes. with Hard Eight which is underrated then Boogie Nights is a classic immediately out the gap Magnolia another one back to back Punch Drunk Love which shows that Adam Sandler can actually act it's a really good mm. film and if you don't believe me have a look at Uncut Gems because he can still act there too. And then there will be blood. Then he does the master, which is love that film. Love Hoffman. that film. Ah oh, man, that's such a great show. Basically, like a, a fantastic take on on the on the, the 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 Scientology origin story. Fantastic. Inherent Vice is good, but I wasn't a massive fan of the book, so I just thought it was okay. And Phantom Thread I liked, but again, more as a thing that I was admiring from a distance. I didn't buy in as I have done with his others. And I haven't seen Licorice Pizza, so I can't speak. No, neither have I actually. But that is a fellow with a serious, serious, serious track record of making wonderful films. And 
his his collaboration with Day Lewis here is amazing. I, I read an interview with Day Lewis ages ago, and he said something that really stuck with me because you know I'm sort of artistic wankery type, and he said that the voice is a fingerprint of the soul, and Plainview's voice in this is just the most mm. uh, spellbinding part of the performance. Whether he's like dialing it in or being aggressively quiet or quietly aggressive or outrageously loud or soft and threatening in the way that that brilliant scene that he does as Bill the Butcher where he's sitting beside the bed with DiCaprio's in the bed with um, with uh, Cameron Diaz's uh, character. And that is just, I love the the, the restrained um, um, version of, of 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 the crazed lunatic that we see earlier on, and that perfect New York accent of the era that he nailed stone dead as well as as Bill the Butcher. But Plainview is just, I think, probably one of the the, the most iconic cinema characters. I, I for me, uh, in 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 my cinema watching history, yeah, because I just every frame of that film. It's just magic. I love every bit of it. I love the, the the character arc that 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 Plainview goes through. That he has this little bit of a redemption period, and that when he when he has his his son, and then because the son is no longer physically correct and perfect, he reverts to what he is, which is this sort of brutish, animalistic man of action, on his own doomed and destined to be a loner. You've got that wonderful scene where his fake brother arrives and he's, you know, beautifully cold and detached and allows himself a minute of, of sort of, 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 of weakness and, and, and emotional uh, recollection. But then these, these great lines, like, I don't like to think about these things or talk about these things, you know, and he's got, it's, it's that wonderful voice. Now I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but I think, the brilliance of Day-Lewis's voices in some of these movies is that they're borderline caricature. It's just uh, just the right side of getting away with it and therefore immensely powerful. But, you know, it is nonetheless the biggest weapon in the arsenal mm. there that Day-Lewis has every single time. I absolutely love it. The movie itself is based, by the way, for those who are interested in doing it, I don't know, I don't know what the, our, our, our um, catchment area is as a listenership, but if you're interested in the, in the, in the, um, the origins of the movie itself, it's based on a, a, a an Upton Sinclair book um, called I just think it's just called Oil. Yes. But, but but do look up Upton Sinclair because I got interested in this guy ages ago. He was one of the original muckraking journalists, and he wrote a book called The Jungle, which was a critique of the meatpacking district, um, and it was supposed to show the horrors of the working man's existence, and it did. But I think the book got hijacked and basically used to bring in these new conditions, which actually ended up suiting the big boys, took out all the middle players and the lower players and left just the concentrated power amongst the bigger companies. So it ended up having the exact opposite. And that is a story that we're all too familiar with today in regulation, um, if you uh, cast your eyes about. So there's just endless little reverberations out of this film that I could talk about all day. So for me, it's the one that will live with me the longest of, of, of his work. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe he's not finished. Maybe there's another day of his performance yet. We can only hope, Dave. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, he is only 65. So, you know, he, he, he could, if he wanted to, do two or three more films and have two and three year gaps between them and still be out the gap by the time he's 75. Um, I'm sure he's had plenty of offers. I'm sure there's not, you know, a month that doesn't go by where his agent isn't getting a call saying, is there any chance he's, he's considering a, a <laughs> week comeback? Because we've got this little gem here that we think he'd be perfect for. But, I mean, if the career is the career, then it, there can be no complaints of what he's given us. The only complaint I have about There Will Be Blood, and this is a very minor complaint, Paul Thomas Anderson likes to work with the same people. He has producers and editors and casting directors and costume designers and composers and cinematographers that he works with all the time. 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. And he has actors that he works with all the time. He likes to have like that tight knit knit group because he feels that's the most collaborative way of telling the best story. I he think made, I know where you're going with this. Go he on. made four films before this. Yeah. And he made one after it, all of which had Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes, I knew you were going to say. Not in this, and it kills me <laughs> because yeah. I loved Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, I yeah. he made me laugh like. De Niro is obviously the star of Scent of a Woman, but right underneath him is George Willis Jr., yeah. Seymour Hoffman's character. Absolutely brilliant. And from then on, I, I was just, I, this guy was someone, I, if he was in something, I was going to make sure I saw it. You knew it was going to be good. He, had, he knew he had, it was going to be good. He, he had, like, this, this brilliant sort of exhausted, cynical dry humor to him all the time yeah. he's, he's, he was he was fantastic i loved him and, and a, a, a savage to work as well like made a vast amount of of films in his in a, in a 25 year career but also constantly worked on stage did a stage performance every year between 96 and 2013 he took on a run either as an actor or as a director on stage because he cared about the craft and young actors who worked with him in, in the later years of, of Hoffman's career have said he was always great as a guiding hand. Like he would tell you if he thought something needed to be tweaked. He would give you the nod if he thought you'd hit it right. He yeah. was a stickler for standards. So if he felt something wasn't up to scratch, he would call it out. If he felt someone wasn't taking it seriously or, or giving everything they had, he would call it out. If he felt people were disrespecting the the cast in a play that he was directing, he would call a halt to it. I'd and imagine have the he, people removed from the, the theater. I'd imagine he was quite fearsome. Yes, you know he gives that impression of that kind of quiet threat about him. I, I imagine he's quite fearsome and intense. I mean, you, as a as a mega fan, then what? I, I, maybe it's very predictable, but the role in the master for me is just the the, the absolute height of his of his career for me. What what what, what would it be your favorite one? Yeah, the, the master is is phenomenal. I really like him in Moneyball. I, <laughs> yes, as a secondary character, I think he's great. Um. I like him in I like him in the again it's later in the career I like him in the Hunger Games. Um Truman Capote obviously is the film that he won best actor for. Um and and he's he's tremendous in that. But you go back earlier uh, Lester Bangs in Almost Famous. Oh, I think that's a fantastic one. Tremendous. Yeah. He's really good in 25th Hour which obviously is uh, an Ed Norton led film but he's I, I think he's so important to the overall blend of the film. And what about um, the kid he plays in um, that other P.T. Anderson movie, Boogie Nights? Do you know the real, the guy who's brilliant. poured into the little it's, vests it's and he's, he's just falling all over Mark Wahlberg all the time. He's just so vulnerable and fragile. Yeah. Compare, compare that to the master. It's just like the range this fella has. Yeah, that's the thing. Like he goes from being like in, in Scent of a Woman, he's like the, uh, he's like the humor guy. Then he's like the bumbling fool in a couple of different roles. But at the same time, then there's always there's always a role thrown in where he plays quite a, you know, quite a straightforward, serious character and, and shows his range. I love him in Twister, which I think is is a quite an underrated disaster film. Yeah. I think he's really good in it. And again, he's he's the type who made his bones as like a secondary character actor could could fill in what do you need he'll fill that role lovely stuff away we go and then when he starts to get a bit more a bit more focus and he starts to get kind of more leading roles he's able to carry a film which you know we see with a lot of actors that spend their a lot of their earlier careers in secondary roles and then when they get plugged into the main role they just can't carry the film yeah but he had no problem carrying a film and yet didn't have so much of an ego that he couldn't then drop back into a secondary role. You know, he was able to flip between the two and, and do whatever was needed. I, I just think he's, I think he's one of the great actors of the last 35, 40 years. 
And I think, you know, he obviously passed quite early. He was only 46 when he died. I think it's it's such a loss because I really did feel like he was kind of establishing himself as like maybe the next the next great actor, not the next great leading man, because he's not he wasn't a leading man like DiCaprio or Pitt or Clooney or whoever you want to say. He was he was an actor like like Daniel Day Lewis. He was an actor like Tom Hanks. He was the type of guy who would give the great performance without all the bravado and the bullshit. It's some way to end up a show talking so much about Philip Seymour Hoffman when we've been focusing on the daddy of them all over the last mm. 20 or 30 years. And we mentioned Bob De Niro and we mentioned Dustin Hoffman and I mentioned Marlon Brando. And here's Hoffman right there at the end holding his own. you got to love that. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to wrap. Hell of a um, chap, brother. Enjoyed that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we should be doing this as often as we can with the... With the football nearly over, it'll be nice to have the summer to to focus on other things. So I think we'll do more of these. We'll definitely bring back on the books as well. We owe, I think we owe the people a, about eight of them. So we'll have Full to get series, through them yeah. squared away yeah. in the summer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, we'll definitely. I'm o- I'm open to do, to do any, uh, topic whether it's film, TV, you know, focus in on a specific actor like we've done today. I think that could be an interesting little project for us to pick our Mount Rushmores of of actors. I think I think we both have Daniel on that on that pedestal, but uh, we can move him whatever way you want, and we can you know whatever. If people have any suggestions, you have us both on Twitter, you have us on Discord, send them in. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that's a good place to end. We'll wrap it there, buddy. Thanks very much. Thanking you. We'll see you next time, folks. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.